0: Refine Labs, this is State of Demand Gen.
1: Hey everyone, welcome back to Demand Gen Live. Great to be here with all of you back for, I believe this is episode 96. So we are fast approaching 100 episodes for Demand Gen Live, which is wild. And I'm going to browse real quick because I bet there are one or two people here that were on episode one. Yep, I see a couple of them here which is amazing. And uh, I just wanted to take a second before we got into the episode, just to say thank you to uh, everyone that shows up here, to everyone that listens to the podcast and provides good feedback and engages with the content online. It has been a a really great start to 2022 and a lot of that I owe to uh, the support that we get from the community here. And so I just wanted to let you know that I appreciate all of you. Now, I don't think we have any big announcements coming up, so we're just going to get right into the agenda. One thing that's top of mind for me and where we're going to get started today, it's titled annual planning blunders to avoid in 2022. There's a lot of companies going through annual planning right now. These are, I've been been helping companies do it for almost four years now. And so I've seen a lot of cycles and and a lot of companies do it. And I've seen some really good approaches of what people do, and I see some common mistakes uh or things that you might want to avoid and so I'm going to share some of those with you in hopes that it helps you uh helps you get going. Okay. Number 1, only using a top-down model to project your outcomes. This is one that happens a lot. It happens across the board whether it's in series A, very often in, you know, series AB type of companies, but I see it happening also in Larger, more established organizations as well. The issue with this is that a top down model is often not rooted in reality. It's not rooted in historical performance. And it comes from setting a number like, hey, this year we got to go from 25 to 50 million ARR because our, our investors said that if we triple, triple, double, double, then we'd get to 100 million ARR. So we got to go from 25 to 50. And so that's what they put in the in the model. And then they just go, well, uh, I guess marketing will be responsible for half and sales will be responsible for the other half. Okay, let's go, team. Let's go out and get it. And this is your opportunity as a as a demand gen leader, as a marketing leader to run your bottoms up model to make sure that the goals are realistic, that you have enough time to ramp. That you have the resources necessary in order to hit the targets, that you get alignment on how with the rest of your team on what sources of pipeline are going to help get you there. And that helps you have a conversation with people if the top down comes 25 to 50 and you come back and say, hey, based on historicals, marketing contributed only 23 percent last year. So even if we did X, Y and Z, it's likely that we'll only be able to contribute 40 to 45 percent next year, not 50 percent. I think that we should reforecast X, Y, and Z. Alternatively, I put together an, a plan with an option of, if we wanted to try and go for 50, the things that I would need in order for to make that happen, which would include two or three more headcount, more media spend, and additional X, Y, and Z to run events or something. And so that gives you the opportunity to have a uh, educated business conversation with the, the rest of the executive team and the revenue team about what's needed in order to hit these targets, because getting that set at the beginning is way better than getting halfway through Q1 and realizing, oh shit, like there's no way that we're going to be able to get there. So number one is only using a top down model. A sub bullet to this is that when you actually look at the sources of pipeline, so main sources of pipeline for marketing for most companies is going to be through your website, through events, potentially some type of like, uh, I guess partner channel doesn't go there. So uh, website events, other like type of affiliate aggregates aggregators or syndication like a g2 a software advice things like that those are probably three major categories and then looking at what are the things that we would need to do to even go from three million dollars uh, a quarter in pipeline from your website to eight million dollars a quarter are you gonna be able to get that from q1 to q2 that five million you know 150 percent jump almost are you gonna be able to do that or do we need more time to ramp? How is that going to work? Okay, so we'll close out number one, only using a tops down model. Number two, building in unrealistic conversion improvements to conversion rates in your funnel. We won uh, 18% of SQOs last year. This year we're going to win 30%. And that's why we're in it, our revenue is going to go up by 55 60%. And I'm saying these things and kind of like, you know, saying them as I'm joking, but these actually happen when people build their models. Some not only in annual planning, but sometimes just like from August to to September, our conversion rates going to go from 25 to 50 and just build in unrealistic conversion rates to hit a tops down projection when it's most likely not going to happen. Number three. Assume success in an unproven GTM model or segment. So an easy example for this is companies that build in, Hey, our ACV and SMB is 8K ARR. We are going to need bigger deals in order to be successful. So what's plan in that we close a bunch of enterprise deals for more than hundred K. Not having any success, closing those deals. Not having a proven GTM, not knowing what the sales cycles are, the conversion rates, how you're actually going to get those accounts into your pipeline and close them. But for the back half of the year, you're planning on most of your deals being that size. And then when you get there and you don't have it and you have an unproven GTM in your model, it creates a, a huge amount of risk in your plan. So before you put it in the plan and you put it in the number to go and report it back to the board and, and say, chalk it up as hey, we're gonna get this done, I would highly re- Highly recommend making sure that that model is proven before you put it in the plan. Number four is assume unproven channels deliver for you. Like for instance, coming into 2022 planning, Hey, this year, this year is the year that we're going to crush our podcast. We've published zero episodes. We don't create any content online. We've never tried it before, but our podcast is what's going to end up driving the growth of our company this year. And whatever it is, right? it is, it doesn't have to be organic, it doesn't have to be podcasts, it could be spending more money on media or any other thing. The point here is that you have an unproven channel that you don't understand and have not characterized the impact of that channel or the scalability, but then build it into your model without understanding those details, which again, creates risk in the plan. Number five. Planning on new programs to deliver on day one. This one I see a lot. Hey, we'll just turn on that agency and all of a sudden we'll go from $3 million a quarter in pipeline to $9 million. That'll work great. Or, Hey, like we will build in that, uh, additional spend on Google where we go from 50 K a month to 300 K a month on paid search ads. And that impact the pipeline is going to happen that month that we put it on, not recognizing that there's a ton of fine-tuning, mistakes that need to be made, learnings that need to happen, which can take months in order to really dial in what is the appropriate amount of spend, what are the expected results, where is the point of diminishing returns. And so I think people just uh, don't think about the time ramp necessary to introduce a new channel, which I would estimate is somewhere between three and six months to really have a new channel tuned in. From a paid standpoint, organic might be even higher than that, but six months is a good window. And then number, number six to round this out is not completing annual planning in a timely manner. So that your team doesn't know what the goals are and you're halfway through Q1 which creates a ton of, like, what do you do there? Nobody knows whether they're succeeding or failing. Nobody knows whether they're on track. And so making sure that planning happens in a timely manner and is rolled out, obviously you can reforecast and you can replan, but having something for the team to set out to go and accomplish on day one of the new year I think is a good strategy, and I just tend to see a lot of companies fall behind on that. I understand that these models are incredibly complex and businesses are moving fast and all of those different details, but um, to get your team to buy into a plan and then actually go out and execute and get it done. I think that you wanna have that all, what the goals are set going into the new year. And that rounds out some of the planning blunders to avoid in 2022 annual planning.
2: That was a great list.
0: Lots resonated with the people in the chat. Oh, what was number five, asked Patrick.
1: Number five was planning on new programs delivering on day one. So not building in a ramp for new programs or tactics to actually deliver. Um, Almost none will deliver on day one when you turn them on.
0: So one of our loyal community members who's been here since episode one, David, has a good question on this one. So I'm gonna bring him on. Great. David, I'm so glad you're my first question of the night. Such a safe place.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, I'm I'm happy to be your safe place. Um, So I totally love the the list of five, and we'll look forward to reading about it again in a feed near me. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, to go along with this forecasting, Have you had or does anybody have any experience who's on this, who's listening to this um, or or live, I suppose, to be able to answer me around marketing mix modeling and how that might change or become part of that planning process? It seems intriguing as a technology or as an idea. The largest consumer packaged goods companies had their own marketing mix modeling and now, now it's come down to mere mortals like us. Um, thanks to SaaS software that's available. I'm just curious if you had any thoughts around it, if you had any um, conversations with different leaders about that type of technology?
1: Yeah, I would, uh, if anyone has any thoughts, feel free to drop them in the chat. would love to hear what other people think as well. So I have been uh, looking at this for a while now. Um, The reason that I was looking at it initially is because it's, a was a clear alternative to running what current vendors use for do for attribution. So an alternative way to think about how you plan and measure the success of your marketing and forecast the success of your marketing programs, which I thought was quite interesting. We, we obviously came up with a different discovery. That's much more simple and lower technology lift with self-reported attribution, which has solved that initial need. But it's something that I've looked at quite a bit. My, uh, initial feeling right now is that the market in B2B is not mature enough to take this on that would not be ready to adopt it, given all of the constraints and old thinking around how they think about measuring marketing and attribution. So there's a forecasting component of it, which is nice to look out, but there's also just trying to understand how is the actual overall mix and what components of the mix are making an impact as an alternative to attribution that I don't feel executives will accept, despite uh, how much math and science is built around that. I've also looked at a couple of the tools there, which seem quite interesting, and I hope one day to be able to test them against some of the things that we're doing here. At the moment, we basically run a manual form of marketing mix modeling here, which is looking at blended impact of all marketing programs in a multi-touch model without multi-touch attribution and measuring all of the impact against that. And then using different signals like custom conversions, like self-reported attribution, like qualitative measurement, like things like that, to get the signals to understand how to fine tune the mix. I do uh, acknowledge that it's quite manual right now, but I think that it's a lot better than the current state of how companies do it.
3: I haven't had a chance to use that type of technology either. So it's um, just, Intrigued me. It's interesting that you've come up with another way of doing it. And uh thank you. I appreciate that.
1: Always appreciate your questions, David. Thank you. And we will see you back later on the show.
0: Thanks, David. Helena was asking in the chat, are you still using dream data? You've talked about that before.
1: I mean technically we are still on their free trial plan. Yes. Um I did some initial looking. Like I mentioned before, I believe the most uh at least the most value that I saw out of the tool initially was to for people to understand the time between when an account actually becomes and visits your website to when they convert, which what we found is about two X the average sales cycle length, which means that if you're creating demand that you need to create demand about two sales cycles ahead of your actual outcomes, which is ironically quite close to what we see here and in exper- in when we're running it with a lot of different companies. So company with a 90 day sales cycle, actually starts to feel the real impact of a create demand strategy after 180 days. Which ironically is exactly the same amount of time that dream data measures from when someone hits your website to when they convert as a like a to- an extra point of a sales cycle that's very long that you don't see right now. So um, I think that little component uh, may not be worth paying for, but could be worth setting up a free plan and seeing what that looks like in your data. I believe that it can work retroactively as well. I'm sure that there are other like uses of the tool. I'm not here to, actually, it's interesting. I have a topic on technologies, so maybe we'll go into that right after this. I'm sure that there are other uses for the tool, but when it comes down to like how I think about attribution, I need software to measure how buyers enter pipeline. I don't really care about what happens in the middle because I acknowledge that all I see in that tool about what happens in the middle are the things that can be measured, and I recognize that all of the most valuable parts will not be measured. And so I think that by using it, you almost get a slanted view of how it's working. So yeah, I believe that there probably are use cases for it, but we've used uh, self-reported attribution to understand how, how demand is created and how the buyer reflects on how the demand was created for them, and then use attribution software for capturing demand and optimizing how buyers enter pipeline.
0: Let's tackle your clarifying marketing technology agenda item. I'm not even sure where you're going to go with this. So I'm excited to hear yeah. what
1: you're saying. I'd like to clarify like, what my thoughts are on marketing technology overall, because I feel like my thoughts and statements are misunderstood. And so what I'm trying to help people see is another side of the story that at the moment, most people don't see. The other side of the story, like some of the things that I've brought up about attribution are not to tell you not to use attribution software. We just had a question about it, I didn't say that. And all of our customers use it. And it makes sense for most companies that could be our customer to use some type of attribution software. What I'm trying to point out to you is all of the things that it doesn't measure that you're not seeing right now and not acknowledging. And if you were able to acknowledge and see them, Then you would be able to maybe think about a new, a different, an additional way to measure marketing to work as a hybrid model, but software and something else, which would then allow you to see, oh, these are things that buyers are actually doing that they say is driving the most impact, which then would allow you to think about changing how you measure marketing. But at the moment, you don't get that story. And so I, and people are mentioning that, uh, the thoughts are, like clickbait or other things like that and or like a narrative of my company which is not true what i'm what i'm providing is a point of view for marketers that the marketing world needs an additional way of seeing the world that you're not getting from vendors and analyst firms or ad platforms it's so crazy that like almost no marketers bring up these points of view but i think that people need to have and see a different side and that's how it comes to attribution But in other technologies as well because when you implement them you're getting one specific story about how to use the technology and so i like i like having a balance because there is zero technology that will make the difference of whether or not you succeed or fail in marketing it's not how it works whether you succeed or fail in marketing is built on the fundamentals how do you do you understand customers well have you put together a good story Can you communicate that effectively in certain ways? Do you have the right mindset and the right intent? Are you looking at marketing in a long-term view? Can you actually help people? Things like that are what matters. And then as you start getting things moving, you can put certain technology in place to make something that's already working work more. But what most people do is they take technology and they put it in before anything's working And they think that it's going to make everything work, and it doesn't, because technology will accelerate things that are already working, but they're not gonna make things work that don't work. I'll give you an easy example. I've been crushing Facebook and Instagram ads for more than five years now. I'm very surprised how still I get so many comments from CMOs and executives and people like that of, oh, we don't believe in Facebook. Or we tried Facebook for lead gen and got a couple of shitty Gmails, and so now we've given up on it. or. The B2B buyers don't use Facebook or whatever people are saying, it's unbelievable. And so I've been crushing it for more than five years, still right now it's happening. And I was doing it and I was able to, in 2016, go in and pick certain accounts and I could literally pick the right job titles and what they studied in college and all these different targeting criteria in 2016 before a lot of the privacy policies and things have emerged. And so it was really working then. I could basically get to everyone in the country that had a certain targeting demographic with no additional technology. At the same time as that was happening, and I was driving, putting $50,000 a month into Facebook ads directly targeted at the accounts that we were going after, driving $10 or more in qualified pipeline for every dollar we spent on ads, companies were trying to sell us ABM software to move money over to display ads. And so uh, we didn't do that because in my view, it's not like we're display ads were crushing for us and we're looking for a better way to target on display ads. Display ads were not working for us, we were not using them, and then we were not gonna move money to an unproven channel away from a channel that's working. And as the targeting criteria started to go away on Facebook through Cambridge Analytica, we were able to find technology that enabled us to find new ways to target on Facebook and Instagram so that we could keep getting success. And actually we've driven a lot more success as we've added technology to that. But the technology isn't the reason that we won or lost. It was the strategy. How do we put the right content in the right place in these ways and measure it the right way? And so there's a lot of little nuances of how you add technology. Another easy way is like, I find that a lot of the benefit of uh, technology right now is in the operational side of it. Enrichment, routing, calendar bookies, data, things like that, that can hopefully improve the the overall customer experience and flow. And so those are places where I think technology can really win right now. And as we kind of close out this topic, yeah, I just wanted to, uh, like the things that I'm saying are not telling you not to use technology is just trying to give you a different view to say when and how should I think about technology and what are the blind spots that I don't see because people aren't telling me about these things that I'm trying to tell you so you can see through blind spots before you think that technology is going to save the day. With all that said, I'd be happy to open it up and maybe get a couple clarifying questions here.
0: Yeah, definitely. One of my favorite newer community members, Patrick, who always has really good questions, has one for you on this. Welcome to the show, Patrick.
4: Hello, hello, happy new year. I'm finally back. Um, Hey, man, good to see you guys. Good to see you. (laughs) So yeah, I'll jump in. So basically, uh, I had a question about um, when comparing the self-reported attribution to the tech side of stuff. Yeah. um, I'm Curious in terms of how big the chasm is generally in terms of like, um, you know, what people say they came through versus what the tech side of things says mm-hmm. um, and how much of that is later confirmed in sales calls, if any of it, mm-hmm. um, or whether we're sort of, I assume not taking that just only at face value, seemed way too thorough for that. So,
1: Yeah. Um, in our data, it's the software versus what the customer says matches at a category level. So category level would be like community social media search like big categories, matches less than 10%, maybe less than 5%. It's different inside of B2B SaaS companies, which we are collecting data and intend to aggregate and analyze. But the ones that I've looked at so far have mismatches above 50%. And it's a function of how far along you are in creating demand. As you get better and better at creating demand, those numbers should diverge. You want them to be different because you want buyers to be finding out about you in certain places that we talk about here in dark social because it's the most effective way to get information between peers to make buying decisions. And so you actually want the numbers to be different. And then if you see it and realize that there, this is a hybrid approach, not an either or approach, that you see that you have insights on where are people actually hearing about you to start thinking about whether or not they wanna buy, and you get the how do they actually come in and convert? Which, if you look at the data, will most likely be passing through Google to convert. And you get both of those, uh, both those views. It gives you a really interesting look that companies don't get right now. And so, when we have, uh, when I have a little bit more time, we'll be doing more of a, like a large-scale data analysis to look at this. It would be interesting to slice it by uh, buyers' persona, company stage, things like that. But we're probably a couple months away from having anything tangible on that.
2: Any response or? Yeah, let's get him back in.
4: Yeah. yeah, sorry, I have to. Yeah, I have to be buzzed back in. I <laughs> muted myself to uh, not interrupt you. But yeah, cool. That I mean, that makes a ton of sense. I'm really interested in how that data plays out later on. I it makes it. I mean, the whole divergence over time thing makes so much sense. In that, mm-hmm. you know, if you're creating demand effectively, then there should be someone saying like, "Hey, I saw your podcast four months ago, and now I'm, you know, I'm outside of the cookie window, so I've come through Google mm-hmm. or something." That's really cool. Um, I do have a separate question that sort of ties into that one that was a follow up. Let's do it. Um, I'd love to ask. So I think judging by your clarification here, it sounds like a lot of what you're saying essentially is that, you know, hey, I'm not saying don't use the attribution software. What I'm saying is there's an interplay between those two um, and balancing that is sort of the key. I mean, first of all, does that sound broadly correct as to what you were saying?
1: Yeah, what I'm trying to help people understand is see a second side of the coin about all the things that the software doesn't measure that they have a blind spot to right now. And I'm providing a alternative measure that's super easy to implement that would give them insights that I think are super valuable. And people think that it's a attack on attribution software, but really it's just illuminating that, hey, you should probably implement this other thing that's super easy and giving us really good insights to supplement what you're getting in attribution software because it's clear you're not measuring everything there. And so I think people just misunderstand what I'm after here when I talk about the flaws of attribution software.
4: Yeah, okay, cool. All right, so yeah, I think I'm probably... I'm aligned with you then in terms of like what you were saying. Just want to make sure before I move on to the next part of it. So, (laughs) No, I mean, you you sort of went through there and saying, you know, I'm giving people another thing to look at. What I'm learning, I guess, is how we're weighting those things. And it sort of ties into my last question to some degree as well. Like, how are we going to weight that in the early days before we have that sort of long-term data set to look at? Like, how are we weighting the stuff that doesn't come through the software that, you know, we're getting from other people? How much importance are we putting on that? And how does that change our strategy or tactics even on the ground versus you know Mm -hmm. i mean all of this strategically is is in as super interesting but then being able to apply that obviously is is the trick right um i'm just wondering how that sort of adjusts, how you adjust it or how you weight that to to make those decisions
1: yeah you kind of need to buy into modern marketing to even use this data in a advantageous way right because If you don't and you're stuck in this kind of like attribution mirage, you might not have enough exit velocity to see, to get out, to actually see a couple of the things about what's happening in the patterns, right? Our data is extreme. A lot of the companies that we work for are it's meaningful enough for them to understand what's going on. But for a company that's been only capturing demand for a long time, you might actually get a majority of this stuff matching up with some word of mouth and referrals mixed in. And if you look at that and you're not open to changing the strategy based on what you're seeing then you're going to keep staying stuck there and so when it comes to waiting like i recommended in a recent podcast that i did to think about weighting attribution software at 30 percent and weight, finding other measurements to weight the other 70 percent which could be at uh self-reported attribution running t- some type of win-loss analysis uh asking people during gong calls running qualitative surveys other, or quantitative surveys in other ways. There's a lot of different ways to figure it out. But what I'm suggesting and what I implied with that statement is that what customers tell you should be more important than what software tells you. So the 70-30 is just a some type of number that demonstrates that, how I weight those things. And so, but 50-50 could be okay too. Um, The clear thing is that like, and I'm sure I know that you understand this, but I'm just trying to make it clear for the listeners is like these two things are not competing against one another. It's not like, oh, one's wrong and one's right. It's that you need to see both parts. Where is the things? Where is the place starting? Where's the buyer telling you it's driving the most impact? And where is it ending? And how are they getting into pipeline? And so looking at both of those. It's tough to say that we use 50-50 because we're probably 100, 90-10, 90 on what customers say, 10% on software, but we're at the extremes. I think somewhere 50-50 to 70-30 on the side of what customers say to software is probably a good ratio.
4: Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I I feel like a lot of established B2B is 90-10 in terms of, or 95-5 in terms of like, hey, just whatever the data says and the rest is sort of one or two insights from people we, whoever's in the high enough in the, the totem pole to be listened to. Yeah. And then there's the, the other companies that are 50, 50, it's like, Hey, what we see, and also just, we're just going to gut check the rest and not worry about, it. even if mm-hmm. the data says the opposite, we're just going to gut check the whole thing with nothing else, not mm-hmm. even qualitative data.
1: Yeah. It's interesting to watch, um, some of our customers evolve over this over a long period of time, years of time, 18 months plus to see how the thinking not only at the marketing level but at the organizational level about attribution changes cuz and if you consistently drive the outcomes that you need i think companies care less and less about attribution as you hit or exceed targets and so it's been interesting to see companies that
3: are
1: 100% focused on attribution when they st- when they start with us or before they started with us to 18 months to 2 years later like yeah they have attribution software yeah they have a looker dashboard that's showing different things yeah people talk about it and they put it in models but when it comes down to how budget gets allocated and how things happen at the executive level it's not weighted nearly as much as it used to be and so it's interesting to see the progression as people like evolve in their thinking it's actually a really cool thing to see
4: yeah i feel like i've monopolized a lot of time yes i don't want to take up much more of it but i appreciate it yeah um Yeah. If I can say anything, uh, just a quick note there, the whole, like, I feel like the whole marketing, angle of Hey, I hate um, attribution somewhere. is like the best way to get people to like listen and then just clarify you ahead of it. Maybe. <laughs> Cause I, I feel like that's a, like me personally, I was like, sweet. I'm open to challenging that. That's, that's what drew me. And I was like, I really want to hear the theory behind that. That mm-hmm. sounds awesome. So appreciate, your, appreciate your time. And, and yeah,
1: questions. great to have you here. Thank you.
0: Patrick was saying the clickbait worked. (laughs) No, just kidding. Um, Kathy, you're up. We have a couple questions and then we can see how we're doing and maybe get to that last agenda topic. But Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yes, Chris, I really wanted to ask you about the Facebook targeting. So I used to have a lot of success with it. I started a new job a few weeks ago. Literally one day last week, I tried to target computational researchers—very mm-hmm. specific. I know, and people in bioinformatics—I know, very mm-hmm. specific. The next day, Facebook made a change, and I can't target them anymore. Yeah, and I know there are other ways. You know, I can target my CRM, but the match rate's really low in our CRM. No, CM, you don't CRM want to CRM do that. Desert. Yeah, not worth it. So, and I know I can do lookalikes, but. I really only need computational researchers and bioinformaticians. So I'm interested to hear if you have a point of view on this. Yeah.
1: How many of those do you think there are in the U.S.?
0: I don't know. That's a really good (laughs) question. I really don't know. Yeah, I should know.
1: So uh, when we were doing respiratory therapists, I knew that there were 56,000 in the U.S. And so lookalikes made no sense to target three million people to hit 56,000. It's just wasting money. Um, So I agree with you on the look. I imagine that there's like hundreds of thousands at best. Um, so there's a lot of waste ways to lookalike. So I agree with you on that perspective. I agree with you that doing a CRM match or a list upload completely defeats the purpose of what this tool is for. You're looking for scale, hit the whole market, not just a couple of emails that, you're, that are in your CRM already that only match at like 10, 15, 20%. So I agree with that. Um, the ways that I would do, and I've honestly haven't used native targeting in quite some time there, um, I would consider looking at field of study. Is potentially one way so what did they study in college that may or may not be a criteria anymore companies are out interests are typically not that valuable alternatively like you could use a targeting tool like metadata or clearbit and both of those depending on your spend can be reasonable options to get to who you want and so um Typically, I recommend if you're spending, if you're trying to spend more than twenty five thousand dollars a month on Facebook and Instagram, that one of those tools probably is a worthwhile investment. If it's going to be five thousand dollars a month, it's probably not, and you'd be better off just taking that five thousand and running it on LinkedIn instead. You could also run, uh, you could run LinkedIn ads and just use Facebook and Instagram exclusively for retargeting, which is again not my favorite use for it. But given the constraints of your budget and other things, it could be a viable path to still have a presence on that channel.
0: thank you so much
1: happy to help you have a follow-up you got what you need i
0: don't thank you perfect <laughs> thanks kathy people love the tactical questions they're helpful to everyone all right tatiana has a good one i think no, you're calling she wants to, to read it out
1: she wants you to read it read it out
0: ah uh, uh, you got it no problem sorry i was trying to unmute you okay So, Tatiana is asking, how can we use these amazing strategies and tactics and apply them to B2B products, uh, which are not software? I'm coming from a medical device angle, high ticket medical machinery, and we have competitors just like any other business.
1: Tatiana, while the question was being read, I was fired. I'm fired up to answer this one because (laughs) I built this stuff working with hardware, medical devices, exact, almost the exact same place, like high capital equipment. Ours had a recurring revenue model disposable, but it was like medical device hardware with a recurring revenue model disposable where this model was initially built. I actually think that this is a huge advantage to try it in industries other than software because the competitive landscape in, the, in those other industries like medical devices so fucking far behind that you have free reign to operate anywhere and nobody else is doing it because they're so stuck in the past. They're 10 years behind everything. So executing well digitally on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter for certain professions, having a podcast and running like live high value digital events would be an incredible strategy for a medical device company. And so how do you implement them? It's exactly the same. You need to figure out where, understand people, understand what the gaps are between what the people that use your products know and the people that don't and what they believe. I think that in the medical space, it's even easier if you have a compelling clinical and economic story, which you should um, in medical devices. What's the clinical story? Where's the clinical data? The clinical data should be objective, peer-reviewed research. What's the economic story? How How do we sell this in through procurement? How do we get people on board with the, whatever it is, lower ICU admissions, lower cost you know get people out of the hospital faster whatever those things are what's the economic story and how do we tell that to people that buy or influence decisions of these products at scale and so i've i did this exact thing with emergency medicine physicians respiratory therapists and emergency room nurse, nurses icu intensivists you know personas like that inside of all of the major hospitals and and academic institutions and so uh, this can definitely work there, figure out what they want to know, figure out where to target them, and then put information that helps them understand those things in those places. I think this is a, would be a huge opportunity for you.
5: Hi, it's quite late, so I can't speak too loudly. <laughs> hey, but thank you so much for that. <laughs> um, what you were talking about attribution earlier, how we are currently running webinars and we do a lot of community nurturing I don't know how cost-effective that is, and I don't even know how to measure that sort of thing. We run a lot of webinars and events online. I'm skeptical, to be honest. This is the last time I'm going to talk, so I'm going to meet myself.
1: <laughs> okay. I'm,
5: I'm too loud.
1: Yeah, yeah. If you need to ask a follow-up, just type it into the chat. If you're running webinars, you should have pretty clear measurement, at least for the attendees. The thing that i pointed out because someone asked me about in my 25 things that don't get measured by attribution software somebody thought that number 12 that i mentioned about someone going to uh, the ceo going to a virtual event and hearing a speaker talk about the product they thought that that was the company's virtual event which is not true Um, and so what they asked me was how many people that come to your events buy from you Um, And I look back at the data and less than 5% of our paying customers attended a demand gen live event before they became a customer. And so measuring the success of your events only on whether you sell to the attendees, I think is a very short sighted move given that the attendees and the content creation then gets amplified digitally where you get all of the value. So to get back on your question. The, you will have. Attribution for people that attend your webinars. You'll be able to look back at that either at the contact level or at the account level and be able to see. On the community side, if you, I think whether you own the community or not, it's going to be kind of like challenging, except for whether, if you just want to look at whether someone's a part of it or not, not the engagement. But I would recommend to look at this more holistically. So when I was doing this, it also depends on the scale and the size of the company that you work for. But when I was doing this, The optimization was purely about how much pipeline and revenue gets created through marketing broadly, not at each individual program, which then creates more flexibility at the marketing level to think differently about attribution. And so those are some different uh, ideas for you to consider.
0: Awesome. We, um, thanks, have a good night. We actually have a question from YouTube. Our good friend Scott is watching the stream there. In response to the the last segment on clarifying your thoughts on marketing technology, he asks, is there any technology that you're looking at that you think is going to be big in the near future? He's curious if you've identified or, or see anything that is up and coming on the technology side.
1: There's nothing that pops into my head off the bat. And the reason that I, at the moment, At my company, we use almost no, except for a CRM and marketing automation, which is basically operational infrastructure and Zoom. And uh, I can't even think of if we use much else. Like besides that, we don't use very much, which is what I'm trying to help people see. Is that like you actually? It doesn't need to be complicated. It doesn't need to have a huge tech stack. You like I think companies spend a majority of their time implementing technology rather than understanding customers. And so I haven't. I, there's nothing out there right now that I'm like, wow, this is definitely going to be something that all marketers need to adopt and use. I think that if there was going to be one having um, the tool that allows people to book a meeting with a rep when they're highly qualified and get into a meeting is probably the most promising one, but this is that's not because the technology is so sophisticated, it's because the process that's being used right now to route high intent leads and get them into a sales conversation with an expert is totally broken and fundamentally flawed. And so the technology there could definitely help, but it would require people to think differently about that process. Um, and so, yeah, then nothing sticks out to me, but that's an idea of one thing. And I'll, I'm keeping my eyes out, but I'm pushing a different narrative than what most people get. And that narrative is that you don't need a lot of tech. What you need is marketing fundamentals. And if you can really, really understand and grasp the those underlying details about how to actually understand people and how to communicate with people and how to optimize an experience about what they want and how to clearly, clearly define who exactly needs your product and why. Um, There's just like, there's strategy components that just far outweigh and far trump the outputs of technology.
0: I Got a couple questions people sent me that they want me to ask on their behalf, but I feel like you kind of teed yourself up the last agenda topic, why you need to look at marketing in a long-term view. You want to jump into that or should I throw a question at you?
1: Yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll look at this. I, I love uh, bringing back some topics that I've talked about uh, before, but not talked about at length. And this is one that I was talking to a, a good friend of mine, the VP of marketing last night, and he had shared with me that He and his company, he leads marketing there, had decided that they're no longer going to be, uh, they're going to move to quarterly reporting, not monthly reporting, which allows fluctuations in a quarter to happen and not people to flip out like there's some fire alarm going on or the worst when people look at like MQL volume by week and they're like, oh my God, our first week of January, our MQLs are down. What are we going to do? Oh my God you make changes to to things that you shouldn't make you have a bunch of fires that people put out that shouldn't even be lit and different things like that so and it was weird cuz i've been pushing that as well as i start to look at a lot of different companies and if you graph outcomes on at a monthly level or at a quarterly level the story is way more clear and it's way different when you look at it at the quarterly quarterly view than monthly view and it allows enough time for programs to really start to work, and it shows much clearer what the trends are. Are we on an upward trend? Is it volatile? Are we on a downward trend? What's going on? On Monthly, there will pretty much always be fluctuations in that direction in our data, too. Um, and so I'm looking at our data too and being like, wow, month, monthly is not a good way to report here, but if you put it stack them up quarterly, wow, that trend is very clear over the past 12 quarters about what the, what's happening. And so that's a little bit of an introduction to this. so that's why I wanted to talk through this. And so a couple of things about why to look at marketing in a long term view is that if you think about playing a game for a long time, then you play it differently. If you think that you need to win the game in a month versus 10 years, you do stuff differently. You take shortcuts. You try things that are not tried and true and not proven. You look for the quick fix, which is what a lot of marketers reach for technology because it promises a quick fix. And so the one is if you look at marketing in a long-term view and create the space to look at marketing in a long-term view, you, all of the things that you do are different. It changes what you do. Another thing is that if you, look at, if you don't look at marketing in a long-term view, then you often don't capitalize on obvious opportunities because a lot of the most impactful opportunities take a long time to develop. And so I'll give you an example here. If we go back to July, 2019, I got 2000 followers on LinkedIn. Nobody's liking my content. We have one cus- one or two customers. And if you look at marketing in a short-term view, which most companies at that size, see series A, series B, pretty much across the board, doesn't matter, do, then you would see, oh, This is not happening fast enough. Forget LinkedIn. Let's just forget LinkedIn. We need to get leads. Let's run performance marketing content downloads. Let's find a growth hacker to fucking figure out how to like hack our website and scrape email addresses from LinkedIn and send automated emails and do all this dumb shit. And let's hire an SDR team to cold call because this stuff isn't working. The LinkedIn stuff, let's get get rid of this. It's not working. When you look at it in a short-term view, that's what people do podcast linkedin tiktok social anything that doesn't give you a quick direct response hit people try for a couple of weeks months if we're lucky don't see what they expect push it to the side go back to doing the same dumb shit everyone else is doing but for the people that stay the course look at where we are three years later it's actually only two and a half years Things are, things are growing. We have the most powerful execution on LinkedIn in the world as a company. I do believe that right now. I think the most powerful um, execution on LinkedIn as in a business in the world at the moment, that's what that's what we're doing. Top 25 podcasts in the world, breaking into YouTube. But you got to look at marketing in a long-term view to have any of these things develop. And now we're at a place where there's just like so much momentum and inertia. But it takes a while to get there, and so to get back. Point number two: If you look at marketing in a short-term view, you don't capitalize on opportunities that are clearly going to work because you don't give them enough time to develop. Uh, this kind of goes in the same vein: uh, you bail out on anything before it has a chance to work. Same example there, like in anything, right? Like we used to do some. We used to do consulting for companies. Um, and help them get their like podcast, LinkedIn, dark social strategy off the ground. We still do it for some companies, but we uh, we used to do it for many. And basically, every company would give up after three months, which is so funny. We're over here having a ton of uh, like having a ton of success. It's very obvious that it's going to work if they just stayed the course. But people just are not interested in making things work over a long period of time. And why do things like our LinkedIn work over a long period of time? The main thing is consistency. You got to have a good strategy, right? And forget the table stakes stuff. You got to have a good strategy, but consistency and the ability to see things in a long-term view, which enable consistency are things that a lot of other people don't have. And so when we get into like an example, a practical example here of what companies could do is imagine that in 2017, you're a business. All of your pipeline and revenue comes from events and outbound. So you got whatever out of your $5 million marketing budget. Three of that goes to events. The rest of it goes to headcount and some other throwaway spend. And then you have a massive sales team and you have a bunch of outbound going on. And then you're like, everything's going fine. I guess like we see our customers are doing things digitally. We can see that there's these pockets of emergency medicine physicians on Twitter. We can see that when we run tests on Facebook ads, that people that are respiratory therapists respond, there are these signals that there could be something better to do, but everything's going fine right now. So we just won't do anything about it right now. We'll just wait. And you just keep waiting. And then 2020 rolls around, events get crushed, outbound kind of goes away, hospitals get flooded with patients They're not looking to buy your technology anymore. They're not answering cold calls. They're not going to events and your business gets crushed, if not directly benefited by the pandemic. And if you went at it in a different angle in 2017 saying, hey, there are some signals over here that I think that we should start to invest in trying to figure out because we look at our business and we look at marketing in a long term view. So I don't think that this stuff is going to be the major drivers of our growth in 2017. But damn, sure looks like it five years from now, we're gonna wanna have to be the we're gonna wanna be the best at marketing in the game. So why makes sense that we probably start building that muscle now. So okay, let's get a couple of people in here, start doing some stuff. We build a new website, we get some things going. But pretty much nothing happen nothing tangible besides that happened in twenty seventeen. 2018 rolls around, you start getting a couple of reps, maybe you have a podcast, you get a couple of episodes, you have some media spend going, you're starting to figure some stuff out, the website's starting to produce a little bit of revenue, you know, marketing might be contributing 5-10% of revenue from zero, 2019 rolls around, now you got a six person team, things are really like starting to move, you're investing more Facebook ads, you're now moving into LinkedIn ads, the podcast now is putting out once a week, and there's a lot of people that are starting to like it. So that stuff is all rolling and then 2020 comes and then the pandemic happens and instead of you not having no events and outbound shut off, you got a major digital strategy with a podcast that has the most listeners when people are all moving into digital channels to consume content and then you win. Then you grow faster, not you're stuck trying to figure out what to do. And so trying to help people understand that that was a three or four year period of time that I just painted. And that's a realistic timeline to go from kind of like marketing doing nothing, having no, maybe 24 months marketing doing nothing, having no marketing poison to having marketing that really delivers, probably more than two years. But having the long term view to think about that creates the space for people to go and learn stuff so that you build the organizational capabilities and you build the internal learning so that you can actually execute. And so I get that there are large goals, short time windows and some of the, um, a lot of the companies and industries that listen to this podcast. I get it. It doesn't change the fact of how you could think about marketing, right? My company's growing real fast. Just because you think about marketing in a long-term view does not mean that you can't grow fast. It just means that when you think about marketing in a long-term view you do things differently so i'm encouraging people to really consider playing the game differently because if you don't then you just get stuck in this cyclical thing where you're like oh i see other people being successful doing these things let's go and try it oh we try it for 30 days i guess it's not being successful let's just go back to what we were doing before then six months later new shiny object let's try it we we'll try it for 30 days okay and i guess We're not seeing it drive a bunch of leads or whatever. Okay, I guess we'll go back to doing what we're doing before. It's been uh, kind of closed out here, but I wanted to put one more point in here. It's been real humbling for me to head over to TikTok and have 251 followers and get almost no engagement on my posts and have to figure out a new platform while I could just stay safe and go over and keep posting on LinkedIn and running a podcast where we have proven success, people love it, and I get a lot of hits for the vanity metrics that people look for. And it's nice to go back and have to start from square one and innovate and figure things out and persevere and try stuff and have to really figure out what, how am I going to fine tune this for it to actually work? And so I would encourage people to think about, think about it differently. If I post a a post on LinkedIn, most of them will get at least a hundred thousand views. Um, and I posted a post on TikTok that got thirty one views. And I laughed about it. Um, and so I just uh, just want to help people kind of like understand that there's, because I look at marketing in a long- term view, I don't care what happens in my TikTok for the first three or six months. I just don't. It's something that I gotta figure out. It's something that I, I made a commitment to doing. And it's something that I'm not expecting some type, I don't have expectations of the results. I didn't build it into my plan. If we go back to the first point, it's not built into my plan that TikTok's gonna drive a bunch of leads or revenue for us next month. It's building for a long-term view. And so, yeah, I just, uh, it's so valuable and I just wanna help people understand that. So thank you. That
0: was a great segment. Omar has a great question to kind of keep this thread going. Welcome to the show, Omar.
2: Hey, hey, thank you, Megan. Hey, Chris, how's it going? Hey, man, great to see you again. Hey, always a pleasure, bud. So as you know, uh, part of this uh, show is actually like therapy session, right? But um, I'll keep it short. (laughs) So I I love your point about um, marketing and having a long-term view on it. And so let me give the context and then the question. So the context is that... You know, when I started to think about marketing as an accelerant to sales, mm-hmm. um, it really made a lot of sense because you can have the best marketing in the world, you can have demand, you can all of these things. If your salespeople don't know how to actually do something with that, it's there's no point. And I got this firsthand a couple of years ago uh, at one of the companies I was at, where we we had phenomenal. We generated phenomenal demand ceo was very very active we would have leads and everything and then i realized that oh this isn't working not because marketing needs to do a better job it's because sales doesn't know how to follow up and 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 actually to take this forward so my question to you is that in order for marketing to truly be successful and especially have a long-term roadmap how much do you feel It needs to be involved with getting sales people to start thinking in a hybrid fashion like marketers in the sense that, hey, marketing is doing, let's say, a webinar has this great content, everything. What am I going to do with this content aside from just getting a work email and blasting it to people like a moron?
1: I actually have quite a different perspective on this. So it'll be fun. Like I don't believe, yeah, I don't believe that sales reps need to think any differently than what they're doing right now in order for this to be successful. And what I know I've literally wouldn't have, will never make an excuse about sales team performance of why marketing is not performing. The reason being is that the sales, you have a comparator for outbound or other lead sources. And so if you look between like three major sources, outbound, events sourced, and then website digital, website digital should have by far the highest win rates. And so you can stack it up. If they're being successful in outbound and then they're not being successful in inbound, typically the reason is because either inbound is driving performance marketing junk for people that either don't have fit, but most likely fit, but don't have intent to buy, and so don't buy, Or the follow up process is so broken that they're letting people fall, fall out the bottom that actually did want to buy, but they're so annoyed with the process. But if you can actually get that person into a meeting with a sales professional, like I've found that if you, if you do marketing well, all you have to do is look at how does the sales team perform on outbound deals versus inbound deals. And that should be your barometer. And it's so it'd be different, like the only way that you can you could say, hey, the reason that we're not getting to where we want to go is because the sales team sucks is if all sources drive no revenue. But if they're over there running outbound closing a bunch of deals, then you there, there's no excuse. The sales team's performing in some way and it's marketing that needs to deliver things for the sales team to close that, that they can close better. They're the same or better than outbound. So that's kind of i'll pause there because i'm sure there's a back and forth here but that's my initial feeling and how i look at it so i try to take full accountability as a marketer
2: yeah yeah and i and and i'm i'm glad you said that and i i do completely agree with you on that because you know and you and i we both come from the same you know old and outdated industry being med device which is every marketing team really just does product management when sales doesn't do well because leads aren't good and everything, marketing's just like, well, it's because sales
1: sucks. I completely Mm -hmm. agree with you on that. Yeah, it happens in SaaS and it happens in all industries, but yeah. So on the accountability part, I agree, but what about, so
2: closing deals is a a different thing. I guess I'm talking more about the inbound, right? And so when we drive marketing campaigns, let's just use LinkedIn, for example, Mm -hmm. it's going to be from the company page, right? Which we know that is going to be limited reach because LinkedIn wants you to pay for that. Yeah. So outside of that, you might have, let's say you're lucky, and you have a CEO who's very, you know, active and everything, but a, more, a majority of those posts are going to be leadership based, et cetera. I really feel that the sales team is marketing's most valuable resource and most expensive one. True. And so I, I feel that, like, I guess where I'm coming from is. I don't like this concept of like uh, two separate teams, sales and marketing. I think that they have different functions, but it's really one team. Mm-hmm. Would you
1: Would you agree with that? When executed appropriately, then I would say, yeah, it can feel like one team. Yeah, right. So, and but it's kind of like I guess, like, gonna... I guess uh, maybe this isn't the best analogy, but it's kind of like it's kind of like playing offense and defense, but not not in the right analogy. You know what I mean? But you got you got two teams that have different things to deliver in order to win the game.
2: Right, fully totally agree. Outside of let's say getting the the obvious, which is getting getting something inbound, getting somebody who is going to sit on a demo and say, yeah, I'm interested in buying. Right? Mm-hmm. There's I feel like there's other activities more upstream that sales can be very much a part of that'll help again refine the marketing strategy and make it work better. For mm-hmm. example, if you were to do let's say if you have pot, a podcast, right, having sales involved with distribution, right, you know those kind of things. I think Refined Labs is a perfect example of that. I actually point to you guys quite often because every single one of, of your employees, whether they're on the video side or demand gen or paid, they have their own professional brand. They promote what Refined Labs does. But they have different ways where they're able to use, you know, get exposure through the newsfeed of, of Refined Labs to like an audience. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? I feel like I just, it, I, I, I did like it does. word salad right now. It,
1: it does but our people would be the equivalent to customer success people in a medical device company, not salespeople. And that's really the distinction, right? So like when I was, in med, when I was in med device, the best people to execute on LinkedIn would have been our customer success people. We hired them out of hospitals. They were They were our exact customer, ideal customer profile. They worked in hospitals, used the technology, had success, were evangelists, and then we hired them to help other companies, other hospitals implement it. Those were the people that would have made the most sense to have active in LinkedIn and places like that, not our sales reps that didn't have weren't clinical and couldn't provide value. You know what I mean? So that's yeah. there's an interesting flip there. Yeah.
2: And I think maybe it's dependent also on the company. So like the larger companies, they're definitely like that. The salespeople are just selling. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you get to like mid-cap and startups, a lot of the salespeople are actually very
1: clinically um like knowledgeable. Yeah. You know. I love that. So I guess it just depends. But anyways. Yeah, Thanks. I guess maybe. Was yeah, let's let's exclude the titles just to close this out, and it's more so about the the, the skill and the knowledge, right? So whether it's sales, yeah. CS, whatever, they got it has to be people that can deliver value. And I posted this on LinkedIn yesterday. It was a very well received post, which is like there's more ingredients necessary than just trying to get all your team to post on LinkedIn for it to really work. There's a lot of underlying infrastructure and mindset that. Companies in outdated industries like med device probably most likely don't have right now to be able to even get to a place where they could do it or see it through to a place where it worked. And so I will. I could reference that post, but I'm sure you have seen it or can find it. So yeah, those are a couple of other thoughts. Thanks, sir. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Great to see you. Good thing too.
0: Thanks, Omar. All right, I got this question sent to me and I want to ask it. Okay. Um, it's from, uh, from Darren. He's asking Could you run through exactly what a director of demand general looks like at Refine Labs? What I'm mainly curious about is where they focus on strategy, where they own execution, how they work with a performance marketer. Darren is from the U.K. and uh, knows we don't hire from there, but is, is not curious. Yet. To, not yet, but is curious to understand a breakdown of the role. Um, and we may or may not be recruiting for Directors of Demand Gen, so just thought it was timely for you to break it down for him.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I would say that uh, at a high level, the director at demand here is the orchestrator of the strategy, making sure that all of the pieces are in place to make it work, which involves some ops insights and analytics. So reporting uh, insights, slicing dashboards, trying to help people see underlying details, basically understanding our customer's Salesforce data better than anyone in their company does, which is almost all of our customers like that. We understand that data very well. And can provide insights that they don't see, and we look at things in ways that they don't see. So that's a huge value. So, ops reporting insights. There's this whole component of just helping people continuously get acclimated to the mindset and the way that things work when you execute a different marketing model and you think about marketing measurement differently. So there's a cut ongoing customer education process that helps move people through. Right, a lot of people listen to a lot of our customers listen to the podcast. A lot of our customers buy into the strategy, but as you actually start to put it into practice. It starts to challenge a lot of deeply ingrained thinking that people have, so being able to help coach and show people the way through there is a big one. And then there's the whole component of literally just figuring out how to optimize capturing and creating demand. How should, how does the budget get allocated? How much should get for capturing? How much should be on creating when we're actually going to create? How much of it should we be at leveraging product marketing, social proof, category marketing, video, static, which channels? what's our path over the next three, six, nine months of how these things are going to scale up, which channels are working right now, what are our future experiments, how much scale is available in each of the channels. Obviously, we don't know that for sure, but we can estimate based on a lot of different data to basically put together a plan of how do we grow our customer's pipeline by more than 30% every single quarter. And that leaves a lot of available opportunities. Another piece that I'll uh, mention in the kind of that falls into the ops category is not only about the reporting and insights, but actually potentially optimizing the customer experience. So we help companies basically completely rebuild their demo to first meeting process, which is probably the highest opportunity in most people that listen to this podcast. The h- biggest opportunity in your business is to fix that process. People that come to your website and ask for a demo to getting them into a first meeting with an expert you could make a you could two extra pipeline just by fixing that part and i keep i finally feel like a broken record on this but i just go into data and i see people have 20 percent conversion rates from demo to first meeting and i'm like how can you be okay with literally your best lead source and best revenue source in your business coming through with buyers saying, hey, I would like to buy now and only getting 20% of them to even sit on a meeting because your process is so bad. And so helping people see, look at how bad this is, You most of your revenue is coming through it and 80% of it's falling out right here. What if we could get this up a little bit, you know? And so there's a basically anything that's accountable to pipeline, we have flexibility to work on. And it's our job to prioritize what are the right things to work on, website CRO, funnel CRO, creating demand, capturing demand based on the dynamics and the goals of the company. So at a high level, I would say that's a a big part of the job. And then there is a part of participating in a lot of the experimentation that we do with our intention to continuously lead the way and have paved ground in new places that other people have never paved because of the scale that we have and because of the talent and sophistication we have as an organization and the culture that we create so people can, can be creative um, and be creative and experiment on things and not be afraid to fail. So experimenting with, at the moment, some of the things we, we are having early success with Reddit, which is really cool, um, planning on um, rolling out some experiments on connected TV. The targeting for connected TV continues to get better in a B2B setting. So I think that could be a real player in uh, 2022 or 20 and 2023 for B2B companies, as long as they have invest appropriately in the creative, which is the number one kind of like factor here about whether or not companies would be ready for connective TV. Is that you're going to have to spend somewhere between 30 and $100,000 on a video to even put in that channel before you think about buying the media, and most B2B companies don't spend $100,000 in creative over an entire year. So I'm not sure that they're gonna invest it in one video. So it requires a huge level of different thinking to even even consider going into a route of like Hulu ads or something like that. Back to just like supporting experiments, whether that's figuring out new ways to generate customer insights, new opening up new channels, trying existing channels in new ways, participating in that level of innovation that we're trying to build here.
0: Well said, Chris. I hope that was helpful, Darren we have samson who joined us tonight and has a question i'm gonna bring him on next before we close out samson welcome to the show
5: thank you megan and thank you chris yeah so my
1: question is kind of hey great to have you it's your first time right great to have you here
5: yes first time i've been a long time listener but yeah first time nice
1: great to have you here.
5: Um, I would like to ask about live on not just TikTok, but also LinkedIn. What are your thoughts on creating the same content you're right now doing on YouTube and here and repurposing that, but streaming it to LinkedIn or to TikTok? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. So I don't have a clear stance on TikTok just right now. When it comes to LinkedIn, I just feel like people consume content differently on the platform than open up that platform on a mobile device and stream a video. I'm not going to talk about me marketing, but as a sample size of one, I've literally never stopped and watched a live video for more than 30 seconds. How many people actually here? Raise your hand if you've stayed for at least 10 minutes on a LinkedIn live. Okay. We got some people in here. Yeah. Okay. Maybe, I don't know, they thir- somewhere between 30 and 50% maybe in a small sample size. So people are doing that and so but i would rather host it on zoom the second thing is that linkedin i understand the linkedin algorithm well but it's like unpredictable and unsophisticated i don't know what else to say and so at the moment we have like a really in like good stream going and so if i'm going to make a new approach into the channel that's driving a majority of our pipeline and is really crushing for us. I'm gonna to have to feel really good about what we're going into it with. And the current thing that we're going into it with is just com- continuously up-leveling our video content to create the best video content on LinkedIn. So that's kind of like the next frontier for us. Perhaps that bleeds into moving into live in the future. And I've, participated, I've been a guest on several live events on LinkedIn. Uh, initially, when they gave me access to use LinkedIn Live, I was very excited to use it because back in the day it was actually like you had to be kind of like you had to be somebody to get LinkedIn live and it, a lot of people had it before me and I was so I was excited to use it and then the technology was so cumbersome to even stream there back in the day that you needed like StreamYard and another video thing and you had to, to hit a bunch of buttons that it, it was pretty much prohibitive I just didn't feel like putting in the effort to figure it out so I didn't and then we haven't looked at it ever since because we've been having success on Zoom so that's kind of like the long answer when I move into new things i'm looking for things that could be the next big thing for us right we have a lot of things working so when i place a bet i want that bet to be bigger than the stuff that's working right now and linkedin live doesn't feel like that to me the last piece is that while we have a really great group here live i acknowledge that a majority of people that consume the content that we create here consume it asynchronously on their own time not live And so making sure that the content is mainly geared for asynchronous consumption is something that I've been leaning into heavily over the past several years, which involves basically getting it recorded and having a live session here with whatever we have here, like 70 people live. But then once it gets repackaged and distributed, it might get listened on the podcast 10,000 times and seen on LinkedIn 100,000 times. So you can see based on the ratio 70 to 110,000 that most people consume asynchronously, which is why I kind of like... I guess prioritize that that piece.
5: Makes sense. Thank you.
1: Thanks. What are your thoughts on LinkedIn Live? You obviously asked for a reason.
5: I'm doing a hundred day challenge live on LinkedIn right now. So
1: no way. Yeah. What's that all about? You yes. go live every day for a hundred days.
5: Yeah, I'm, I'm on day two, but I've done it for more <laughs> nice than man. 15 that's cool. Days. But I've done it for more than 15 days. We started our, uh, live streaming in November Mm -hmm. with our, with our, we came from clubhouse, the same club capital races club. We moved it from clubhouse to LinkedIn live Mm -hmm. to YouTube live and to Twitter. A little bit of Facebook, but Facebook wasn't really giving us the the traction that we were looking for. Mm -hmm. So right now we're pivoting to Twitter instead.
1: Mm -hmm. Twitter is probably the most comparable to the clubhouse vibe, huh? Twitter spaces.
5: Yeah, I would yeah. say so. But so we're about investing in real estate. Maybe. Mm-hmm. So the same kind of audience that found us on Clubhouse find us now through, I mean, I'm connected to the same people. So when I invite them to the same kind of content, we have quite a lot, not a large audience, but it's larger than it was on Clubhouse. Mm-hmm. And because it's live and because it's video, it's more of, uh, holy cow, they can answer this in a live setting, just like you now, yeah. you really show your expertise. So the people that we bring on, you gain way faster traction than on clubhouse because there is no video there. Yeah. For, for, for me, I'm just, That was a real, out.
1: that was um, a real another. screw up by clubhouse, by the way. Huh? Holy cow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they also made some critical mistakes that ruined the... that. They could have had a huge platform. They had some critical mistakes on human psychology, not allowing recording, not having the option of video. Doing the invite only bullshit for a little while, they made like a couple fundamental flaws that really hurt that platform. They could have been a real player.
5: Yeah, that's the reason. And also because we couldn't analyze our audience, we had to move or we had to pivot.
1: Yeah, as you got talking, another thing is that if they're like the reason that I would use an available live stream on a new channel is to get exposed to a new audience that I don't already have in certain ways, which is why YouTube has been a good selection for us. But LinkedIn's algorithm with a live is not going to go and pump my live to ten, a thousand, or ten thousand more people that don't aren't aren't aware of me or not connected with me. Looking at other channels where we can get a, get exposed to a new audience that may that a platform might give us some reach or some exposure that we don't get elsewhere is another factor as to how we choose.
0: Yeah, makes sense.
5: Thank
1: you. Awesome. Great awesome. to have you here. Hope to see you again
0: samson good luck with your 100 day challenge Mm -hmm. come back and you can report back on progress all right we tapped out our questions for tonight we're coming up on nine o'clock you want to close us out with some closing thoughts
1: yeah that's awesome yeah so um uh, yeah i just want to reiterate appreciate having you all here the questions the engagement i'm like every time between questions i'm looking at the chat and i'm like holy cow like there's really cool stuff going on here, and I think that uh, the people that are here really recognize that, and I'm deeply proud for uh, for what we got. We're also um, hoping potentially gonna be looking to add things or switch things up, so if you have any recommendations, I have been getting a stream from people that have liked a couple of the new content formats that we put together. There was one that I, we released on this Saturday, which was that Me just doing a solo episode, so there was no audience and there was nothing, I just kind of sat down and talked about a topic which people thought I think found it interesting because it's more focused than some of the live Q&A, so that's something that we might integrate. We've also expanded the content to include topics that are a little bit outside of demand gen that include hiring, culture, business growth, financials, things like that that also got positive feedback. And so if you have uh, additional things that you'd like to have added in the mix, feel free to drop the feedback because we literally like the signals that you provide with your feedback is what drives our strategy. So um, if you'd like to see more of some certain thing, I would love to hear from you in the DM. And... uh, again appreciate all you being here it was great to see uh we had one of our like almost highly attended events i think this got up over 80 for a little while during the session and so i appreciate all you being here late on a tuesday night and uh look forward to getting back to it next week Hey, everyone, really appreciate you tuning into this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. I just wanted to take a second to say to all the listeners out there, we just crossed over 40,000 listeners across the world to this podcast. And so super grateful and super happy that for all of you really appreciate you tuning in, attending the live events, engaging on the LinkedIn content, and now watching us get started up and engaging on YouTube and TikTok. And so Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all of you. And if you haven't already, if you've gotten value from the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you'd go to Apple podcasts in the review section of this podcast and leave a quick review or a rating. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you very much. And we'll see you for the next episode.